Today's bonus episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunstreet. Dunstreet is a progressive campaign agency that specializes in campaigning and community organizing. We work with nonprofit and community-based organizations, trade unions, progressive businesses, and social democratic parties across the globe. Dunstreet develops community engagement and organizing strategies to win campaigns both big and small. Dunstreet trains engagement staff, volunteers, and organizers in leadership and power building. And they help leaders craft their own public narrative that tells a story that unites people and moves them to act together. And if you want to create change in your community, then hit us up at dunstreet.com.au. Today's episode is also brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Have you been in a road accident? Whether you're a driver, rider, passenger or pedestrian, you may be able to claim compensation through your super. Oh, there you go. I didn't even know that. Uh, Whatever you're facing... Morris Blackburn Lawyers will have the experience that you can count on and they'll support you through this whole complex uh, arrangement. To find out more, simply go to morrisblackburn.com.au. And finally, today's episode is brought to you by SwiftFox. Every moment on a campaign matters. You need the tools that you can trust. Lists that are up to date, phone banks that can change minds, emails that drive donations, events that will energise a community online and offline, and text blasts that distill your message perfectly. SwiftFox CRM is made for campaigners by campaigners. And to find out more, simply go to swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign. Hello and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left politics and organising podcast that's out every Friday that dives into the progressive campaigns and issues of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. Obviously, today is not Friday. Today is a Monday that we've dropped this one. As I said at the top, this is a bonus episode that we're doing in the lead up to the 2023 New South Wales state election. And we're going to be joined by Mark Morey, who is the Secretary of Unions New South Wales, which is the peak trades and labour council in the state. And they're running this really, really exciting and innovative uh, electoral organising campaign. In fact, there's more than just electoral organising. Obviously, there's data and digital and the whole you know messaging and everything else that goes into it. But they're running this big statewide campaign that's targeting into a particular set of seats to uh, f- turf out the current Conservative MP and hopefully replace someone into that seat that shares the values of trade unionists and the broader union movement. So Mark will be on the show today to talk about that campaign and the genesis that led to the birth of this particular campaign that I think is super interesting and give uh, folks at home a sense of what's happening um, in the election campaign outside of the two major parties. So I hope you enjoy today's uh, episode. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher and uh, YouTube. And if you like the show, please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. And when you're done listening to the episode, leave a review on Apple Podcast or Podchaser. And for all the latest updates of each episode, follow Dunn Street on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Okay, let's get to today's episode. We're taping this one on a Wednesday afternoon on the lands of the Wurundjeri people and uh, joining me on the line from Gadigaland uh, up in Sydney is the Secretary of Unions New South Wales, first time on the show, Mark Morey. Welcome to Socially Democratic. Thank you very much and thanks for the invitation. Good to have you on the show. Good to have you on the show. A lot to get through. I want to talk more about um, the campaign that you guys are running up in Sydney in the lead up to the New South Wales state election, which is 17 days away, I think, from my count. But before we do that, um, obviously, you're heading up the peak body for unions in 
your state. How the hell did you get into the uh, trade union movement? What what was that pathway for you? So I, I started off uh, training originally as a social worker um, and uh, primarily focused on community development. I think my first job, unfortunately, was in social security uh, and it was uh, different faces, same problem every day. And you get that feeling that there's got to be a better way to do these things and change things so you're not seeing the same problems, different faces every day. Um, so I ended up doing working in the youth sector for a while, uh, ran the state youth peak for young people and youth workers for a few years. And then uh, when I left that, a job came up as a special project officer at Unions New South Wales, did that for a few years and did the rail portfolio there. Uh, then left there and worked for the Rail Tram and Bus Union in New South Wales as their executive officer for about five years and then came back uh, to Unions New South Wales where I was the senior industrial officer, then assistant secretary and eventually secretary. What led you into doing the work around uh, uh, young people? Um, I think it, it's about you've got people who you can, they're there to be shaped, I think, um, and providing that they have the right environments, both, you know, education, socially, uh, they thrive. Uh, it's about getting that balance right so that those kids who are, you know, we work with a lot of homeless young people who are, who are illiterate and we set up a program with funding uh, trying to help them actually learn maths and English by building uh, rowboats. Uh, so they had to learn to read plans and do those. So just trying to, I think people deserve a go at that, and at that stage in life, and so much of what happens to you in your as a young person does shape the whole of your career. Uh, so keen to provide opportunities, not just for those people who had an easy path, but ensuring those who had more complicated paths had the similar opportunities. Are there moments in your youth that shaped who you are today and what you wanted to do in terms of uh, how you want to contribute to your community? Um, I think, you know, like I came from a pretty strong uh Labor family, so there there was always that uh, that value of everyone deserves an opportunity. Uh, both my parents were very committed to ensuring that people did have an equal opportunity. Dad was a great believer in education. Uh, he obviously left he left school when he was fifteen. Uh, worked for the, the then Department of Transport, um, but wanted us to go on and, and, and do as much study as we could. Uh, and, and never pushed us to university, just wanted us to get a good trade or a good degree. Um, but we were able to do that because he had access to a good job, uh, a good public sector job that paid well and enabled both my sister and I to be successful and go to university. And I think uh, that those learnings on the value of education and the value of having um, and economic, economic stability to be able to achieve those things became very important. And when you work with people who are socially you know, disadvantaged or homeless or for whatever reason, often it's a reason out of their control. Uh, they didn't bring it on themselves. Uh, and so it's about how do you assist those people to get back on back on the road to actually success and having a, a, what we would see as a, as a normal, happy life. Tough work in social work, though. Um, there's plenty of other things you could do to contribute in terms of the things that the values that uh, were taught by your folks. Why did you choose social work? Uh, I think at the time it, it had a, a good balance between um, trying to help people individually, but it also had the community development aspect to it, which was probably the more, 
you know, a political side of it. I had a, a lecturer, Martin Mowbray, who ended, I think he ended up down in Victoria teaching RMIT social work. Uh, but he ran things like a, a, a rent strike in uh, Department of Housing because their areas, but empowering people and giving them the skills to do things themselves. Um, I think the system becomes very paternalistic. I think it's become even more paternalistic than it used to be around directing people about what they should be doing. And if you look at, I think robo-debt is a good example of a very paternalistic uh, and punitive system that was set up um, that doesn't help those individuals get out of the the difficulties, whether that's, you know, social, economic or health difficulties. Um, And I think that was sort of, it's good to be able to contribute in that way. I mean, I think the other thing about looking back now is we've got a social work student with us who is saying to me, how does social work fit into being a union organiser. Well, I mean, all the skills you learn in group work, working with people, um, being able to talk to people individually and listening to what they're saying rather than just uh, hearing what they're saying. Um, And I think the the community development, how you bring people together to work on a campaign to change things and give them the skills to do it rather than just directing them, I think they're skills that are really important in the union movement, uh, not just in the community sector. Um. When was the first time that you understood the importance of uh, the collective from a workplace setting? Uh, I think I was I was working at Penrith Council. I was the youth development officer, and uh, we had uh, an enterprise. Well, then it was sort of starting around the new enterprise bargaining system, um, and I, I ended up being the union rep for our area. Did you want to be the union rep for your area? Yeah, because no one else wanted to do it in community services. Um, and just seeing uh, it didn't go very well, the negotiations. People lost uh, a number of conditions in that uh, because that uh, we weren't strong, we weren't coordinated and we weren't going in the same direction. Um, I suppose a lot of people have those experiences. Some people say, oh, stuff it, I'm not going to do this again. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was a really good lesson for me and you've got to take the time to listen to people, then you've got to explain what you want to do and then you've got to get them active to actually get there. Uh, and that's a lot of work and a lot of time. Uh, but as you know, if you don't do that, you lose out and you, and you lose conditions and you don't get what you want. So I think that was sort of – and there was a guy there who sort of was a great mentor to me and, and took me through why we failed and what needs to be done. To actually correct that there's a um obviously an important campaign happening right now in your home state that i want to talk about um but before we do that for folks that are uh, outside of new south wales talk us through some of the complexities that exist for both peak bodies such as yourselves unions new south wales but also individual affiliated trade unions in their capacity to try and campaign at election time. Certainly in Victoria, we've got great examples of the Victorian Trades or Council getting heavily involved in electoral campaigns and being very successful at it. Mm. Um, but they're obviously, uh, it feels like you guys sometimes get one hand tied behind your back with some of the laws that are in place. Can you just sort of give us a bit of a background of what the experience has been in previous election campaigns? Yeah, so we, we've had the Liberals here obviously for three terms. Uh, in each of those terms, they've passed legislation uh, to restrict the rights of third-party campaigners. Uh, I, 
I'd say the strategy was if you sat down and worked out a piece of legislation to nobble unions, uh, that's what they wrote. Um, our strength, as you know, Stephen, is that unions don't have the money that you know the mining companies or the banks or Qantas has to lobby. Uh, we pool our resources and we pool the resources of working people uh, to be able to campaign. And what the government has done is in the last three elections, they've passed legislation that says unions uh, cannot act in concert, which means work together uh, on any level or communicate during an election campaign that's run between the 1st of October and the March election date, 25th of March this year. Uh, they also sought in the first round uh, to try and uh, aggregate any union that was affiliated to the Labor Party, that would that would be aggregated to their spending cap, the affiliation fees to the Labor Party, further reducing what they could spend. Uh, and they've put a cap on, and the cap's always been around $1.2 million. Uh, but the key thing for us has been, as a peak body with affiliates, uh, trying to stop us, as they say, acting in concert uh, to run campaigns. Uh, so we've just finished our third high court case, uh, the first one we won 6-0, the second one we won 7-0, and this one we've actually, it's been a funny one, uh, it's all, always been around the right to freedom of political communication. Uh, this one, uh, we actually ran a campaign towards the end of last year and we managed to get it overturned in the upper house. So the, uh, there was an inquiry and the upper house voted to get rid of what was then called Section 35, the Acting in Concert Provisions. And then uh, we had our High Court on foot. We were a couple of weeks away from actually having the hearing. And lo and behold, the Liberal government uh, downstairs uh, moved to actually strike out that, that clause. Um, and they were jumping up and down and carrying on about unions working together and all that. We suspected they got advice, advice from their counsel that said, rather than get another decision on this in the High Court, you're better off dropping it now. Uh, which they did. So we had a win on that. That was through campaigning. And then the last part of the case, which was about uh, spending caps in by-elections, uh, we've won that as well. So now we're just arguing about costs, but that cost us a million dollars to run that um, that case. And there were a number of affiliates who contributed that, to that financially. But just to have the right to work together and campaign, uh, it's cost us a million dollars three times. It's remarkable, isn't it? And listening to uh, good folks like yourself talk about the, the 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 provisions that were in place, the complexity of it as well, I, I feel like that was intentional because it was kind of setting traps. You needed to almost be a constitutional lawyer to work out how to campaign, which is just ridiculous. Well, absolutely. And you have to keep all your receipts, uh, which is, you know, by the by, you do that anyway. But then you have to keep every piece of electoral material that you produce you have to keep uh, all the emails. You have to keep timesheets, uh, which separates your business as usual work as a peak as opposed to campaigning work. Um, there's provisions in there around um, if you give someone a table, that's got to be financially valued and put in the spending cap. Uh, it just goes on and on and on. Uh, and as I said before, they obviously sat down and thought, how do we stuff the union movement in campaigning as a third-party campaigner? Um, and that's how they worked that law out. And to comply with it, you're spending seventy or eighty thousand dollars with your, your your auditors to make sure you're complying with it. And so, if you're a say 
uh, a smaller organization or an environmental group or a human rights group, you're going to really struggle to actually comply with this legislation and be part of it. So it has a massive cooling effect on the right for political communication. But as I said, three times we've run the case, three times we've won it. Um, so that's been pretty important for us. I mean, the other thing they tried to do at the end of the last year was pass legislation where they tripled uh, the fees uh, for unions that went on, uh, the, the penalties for unions that went on strike. But then they also wanted to be able to individually sue union officials and penalise them uh, for participating in strikes. Uh, we were lucky we were able to campaign and that was defeated in the parliament. Uh, but this has been a very strategic anti-union government that has really sought uh, to constrain the rights of working people to pull their resources and work together and campaign. And another unique thing about that, certainly for the Victorian listeners, is that New South Wales still have an industrial relations um, framework, whereas in Victoria, Jeff Kennett ceded that to the feds back yep. in, uh, in the 1990s. So there's a lot of uh, legislative power in government and they're clearly targeted at, uh, at you. And there would have been penalties as well if you had breached any of these campaign laws, correct? Oh, there's a there was a there's um, significant fines and up to two years in jail uh, for breaching them. So uh, it's not a administrative court function. It's actually uh, you can actually be charged and you can actually do time if you are seen to be contravening uh, the rules uh, under these laws. It's uh, quite outrageous, really. Yeah, insane. Let's talk to uh, let's talk about last year. We had your work colleague uh, Thomas Costa on the podcast earlier mm-hmm. in the year, discussing the very successful combined rail unions uh, campaign. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was a big year for industrial campaigns in New South Wales, not yeah. just limited to that combined rail campaign. Talk us through what were the problems that were confronting workers in New South Wales coming out of COVID. Uh, and how unions and members and workers in general responded? Well, one of the things I, <laughs> I said in February last year, I, I, I was on the front page of our, one of our local rag, one of our rags with, uh, this is going to be the year of the strike. Um, and uh, the government was obviously outraged about union leaders talking about taking industrial action. Uh, but which I'd spent a lot of time talking to different unions, talking to their members, uh, and coming out of COVID... Um, I think two things happened. One, the term essential worker got much broader. It wasn't just people in uniforms um, or uh, in the front line of the health system. Uh, For us now, I think essential workers means anyone who stacks a shelf, anyone who works in transport, anyone who makes PPE gear, uh, protective equipment, those sorts of things. all those, I mean, local government workers that continue empty bins, clean streets, do those sorts of things, and the list goes on and on. So that term essential worker got much broader. Um, and I think out of that, uh, people gave, really dug in to get people through the pandemic. I know that all our essential workers in New South Wales, that would have been in Victoria, kept the state going, um, kept it economically functioning, um, And I think for us, while the premiers, whether it was the former premier or the current premier, were happy to smile and put their arm around essential workers and thank them, at the same time, they were putting their hands in their pockets and stealing their money. Uh, Our essential workers or our public sector workers got a 0.3% pay increase. I think it was 2020, uh, 2021 actually, 
as a response to COVID was the cover for that. Um, now, I think people were, and we've had a wages cap of 2.5% up here for the last uh, 11 years. It was 3% last year. Uh, but in that, every time superannuation has gone up, superannuation has come out of that. So realistically, uh, over the last four or five years, workers have actually got a pay cut in New South Wales. Um, and this combined with people who came out of the pandemic who were tired, had worked tirelessly, uh, but were tired because the government had run down essential services, not filled positions, uh, not kept appropriate resources up uh, to scratch, that um, they were tired in covering those things. I know I've heard stories from health workers um, who, are, who have said they've had to make some of the most horrific decisions. We didn't have enough respirators, so decisions about who gets a respirator and who... I mean, people put in those sorts of positions on top of the job they're doing that it wasn't just tiredness, there's an, emotion, there's an emotional or psychological effect uh, that grinds these workers down. And so they start talking to them. They said that we've had enough. We've just had enough of this. We want to be respected. Um, we've worked really hard. Um, and it's not all about pay for these workers that in New South Wales, the ones I've been talking to. It's also about having a system that provides the right staffing levels, the right resources, and that, so they can provide a quality service um, to their, whether it's patients, customers, or people who they're actually using their transport systems, uh, very much about that. And I think that's where this whole idea, notion of running services down to save money, it's just not viable anymore because it's, it's actually undermining our services here in New South Wales. And people are saying to us and have said to us, um, we're starting to think about actually, one, leaving our profession because it's just too hard um, and we can't afford to be in that profession anymore uh, and do our jobs. And secondly, the quality of life is not that that we can get in uh, Victoria or Queensland and people are looking at moving there. Um, so I think that that really started at the beginning of um, 20, 2022. Uh, I think the government there moved to look at uh, trying to, they wanted to make uh, the strikes about the election and we made a commitment that we would make the election about the strikes and why workers are taking industrial action. I mean, if you've got, and we had lots of teachers, nurses, ambos, we had um, the school assistants, uh, prison officers, like they were all taking industrial action last year. Uh, and I haven't seen anything like it mm. uh, for at least 10 years. And the thing that I found most interesting about it is you would go to the rallies and particularly of the uh, teachers and nurses and you'd look at the people in the crowd who are marching they weren't old, crusty people like you and I, Stephen. <laughs> they were, they were young professionals who had had massive hex debts, uh, wanted to buy a home, uh, and just simply couldn't afford to do it. One one example is a, a young guy who was a lawyer who became a teacher because he wanted to teach. Uh, he did that for about six years, got engaged and then realised he couldn't keep teaching because he just couldn't afford to get married and have a family. 
and the travel time. So he went back to being a lawyer. Now, that's we can't lose those people uh, because they're committed, they're smart, they make great teachers. And I, and what we've been seeing here in New South Wales is those sort of people just packing up and going. Another story was a guy was opening a pub in Western Sydney uh, and was advertising for staff. And the first five people that he interviewed were nurses who'd had enough of the system, uh, didn't want the stress levels, wanted similar pay, wanted flexibility to look after their families and not have to travel two or three hours to work every day. Um, So very much the elements of all that combined uh, turned us into a, uh, you know, a hot pot of industrial action up here in New South Wales. And, you know, if we think about sort of uh, the, the, the economic rationalist argument about the let the market drive um, the labour market. Uh, yep. When there's a, when there's a demand or when there's a need for work, then then the market will adjust accordingly and pay people appropriately or uh, improve wages, conditions, and so on and so forth. But it seems to me that it's going the opposite way at a moment where everyone, most of the Western economy, is screaming out for nurses and teachers. I mean, I yep. don't think it's unique to New South Wales. Um, in order to attract them, you've got to make attractive workplaces. And in order to do that, you need to improve the wages and the conditions. And it seems like the Conservative government are going the complete opposite. Mm. Well, I think we, we, we've got to the point in New South Wales where the goodwill that keeps the system running is not there anymore. It's interesting. Um, and I think uh, many of these systems, you see it, uh, whether it's health workers, teachers, rail workers, um, people in the electricity uh, you could probably get rid of a significant number of management levels and the system would still operate because these are highly skilled people, know their jobs, very committed to it. Uh, and once you lose, uh, you feel disrespected in your workplace like these people do, um, I think that's where people actually start walking out of the prof- professions. And then it becomes, uh, I was talking to some teachers the other day, I mean, they love their profession and one of the things they hate the most about it is every time the minister bags teachers out, they're a bunch of communists, they're trying to lecture our kids on LGBTQI rights or they're doing this or they're doing that. It runs the profession down. So you have that effect of those in the profession think, why am I here? Uh, so you're losing them, you're not able to retain them. And then you've got the other, the young people who you want to attract to these professions, going, why am I going to do this? Everyone thinks it's terrible. Um, And so the government lost respect. It's had no respect for for these essential workers in New South Wales, and unfortunately uh, we're now paying the price. Um, The other thing is obviously with the wages cap is we, we just did recently some research. In the next three years, an ambulance officer, a teacher and a nurse will be $13,000 worse off. You factor in inflation, but worse off now over the next three years than they were 10 years ago. So you're actually getting paid less than you were 10 years ago uh, in those professions. And that's just crazy stuff. How can the government continue to justify this um, policy setting in terms of the wage cap then, do you think? Well, I think it's it's now struggling with inflation going up. Um, it's a very blunt tool, and I think um, there's a lot of um, putting public sector workers down. 
um, saying, you know, they're back op- backroom operators, we don't really need them, they're not essential. Um, and I think when we got to COVID, that actually was the test point where those people are really important. You know, whether you're on what people say is the front line or you're, you're in the sort of the uh, support functions, um, you think of all the uh, COVID traces that we had, were all sort of people you never see, never hear of, but played a really important role during COVID. Um, all the people who uh, ensured that the communication systems were set up in departments so we could get people through, messages could get out. Um, that respect has been a real problem that's really disappeared. Uh, and, and the workers, certainly in New South Wales, have said to the government, we're not going to cop it anymore. Uh, and we realise that our, our people are, you know, probably around the second or third lowest paid professions across the whole of Australia. Uh, this is a government that hasn't valued public sector workers or the work that they actually do. And I think people in New South Wales, not just public sector workers, but those who use the services as we get post-COVID, high inflation economy, people are turning to government services for support uh, and they're just not there. So I think there's a real revaluing of uh, essential services and public sector services in New South Wales. The other thing that I would say is that the New South Wales government is the biggest employer in Australia. And so the wages cap that it's had uh, were in professions that are similar to those in the public sector, in the private sector. So teaching, nursing, home care, transport, uh, it has a cooling effect on wage increases in similar professions in the private sector. So the wage cap isn't just about public sector workers, it's very much about having about a third, uh, reduces private sector comparative professions by about a third. Uh, That's really significant. I think that was significant for our campaign because uh, you can't just run a campaign around public sector workers. A large group of people are private sector workers. So that's how we've been able to sort of make that link between public and private sector workers and the wage cap's been very negative for both groups of workers. Let's take a quick break to talk about SwiftFox. Every moment on a campaign matters. You need the tools that you can trust. Lists that are up to date, absolutely. Phone banks uh, that can change minds. Emails that drive donations and events that will energise the community online and offline. And text blasts that distill your message perfectly. SwiftFox CRM is made for campaigners by campaigners. And to find out more, go to swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign. Okay, let's get back to the show. So there was a lot of, in, you spoke earlier about the number of uh, in, uh, strikes for industrial action that happened last year. As a union leader, what were your takeaways or your key learnings from seeing the mobilisation of collective workforces going down this path? I think sometimes people outside of the union movement just assume that uh, workers are always more than happy to take industrial action at the drop of a hat, which is not the case. It's First of all, legally, it's quite a, there's a number of loopholes to get through, uh, but also people don't want to actually go on strike. And I'm just wondering about um, what you're learning from this, um, I would say this courage that's coming from workers who are prepared to stand up collectively and say to government, hey, we're not particularly pleased about what we're seeing here right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's sort of, uh, for me, vindicated the, the position that I've always had is... Um, 
to get people out the gate or get people to take industrial action, it has to be, uh, to use an old Michael Crosby phrase, <laughs> deeply felt and widely felt. Um, and so people are very reticent to go on strike unless they feel very passionate about it. Secondly, I, you've got a lot of um, of these professions, whether they're ambulance officers, nurses, teachers, health workers, uh, community service workers, um, they take pride in their in their professions and they take pride in the work they do. And while they get angry, they're often very reticent to walk out the door and leave uh, their patients or their students high and dry. And so um, one of the things, one of the things, one of the things is unless unless they can see hope of changing something, you won't get a series of stoppages. Um, and more importantly, and I saw this certainly, uh, I think the teachers in New South Wales, Angela Gavrilatis, who uh, had a, so they set up an inquiry into education in New South Wales run by uh, three eminent pe people up uh, here. Um, they looked at what was going on in teaching. Uh, they found out there was massive shortages. Um, they did some up here, which is called SO51s, where in the upper house now they can demand documents off the government and they got documents that confirmed that not only did the uh, uh, education um, ministry... Uh, education ministry knew about these shortages it had said it is a significant problem but they'd hidden that information so that confirmed that they then went out and they educated the public so they they got the public to understand there was a crisis and what the crisis was actually about and it's been about neglect of the education system not retaining teachers not having new teachers and then the next part of it was if you haven't got good teachers and you haven't got enough teachers, your kids aren't getting good education. And that was then, so they did a lot of powerful, they did a lot of work, they did a lot of education of people. And then the other part of it was that if you go to the pub or you have a barbecue up here, there's always someone who's got a kid who comes home from school and says, I didn't have a teacher today, or I didn't, I, I, you know, they missed a class or they're in a composite class. or And so reality matched what they all the work they'd done because they knew they had the right thing and so when they said we're going to go on strike to do this the general public said yeah i reckon they should uh, i mean that, that happened with the nurses that happened with the ambos uh the rail the train drivers and rail workers were able to do that as well uh, and for me it's very much you've got to do that education phase with your members so they know why they're taking action and, and they're clear on how much action they'll have to take to get change. But having your message out there and having the public understand why you're going to do something before you do something is so powerful because when you take the action, um, you'll still have critics in the media, uh, but you've cauterized a lot of that right-wing um, crazy unions, wildcat action, that sort of stuff, because people just sat there and go, um, you know, most people have got a, a teacher or a nurse in their family or their friendship circle. The stories that they heard uh, relate to the action being taken. They go, oh, I know why these guys are taking action. And so for me, uh, while there's times to just walk out, maybe around health and safety or, or those, 
you actually have to do a lot of work so that your members understand, the general public understand, way before you ever get to the point of actually taking action. And I think one of the things uh, the teachers did really well uh, was they did this thing where um, if they were short-staffed in a school, they'd walk out at 9 o'clock. Somehow the local paper always turned up. There was a photo and they went back, they were back in school by 9.30 before there was any industrial action. So, and they were doing that at every local school across the state. These things were sort of happening because A, there was a shortage and B, they wanted to get that message out. Uh, And so people love to talk about, we've got to get out there, we've got to have a strike. And I'm 100% a supporter of that. But you have to do that groundwork um, before you get out there. It's a really interesting insight because, I mean, I think a lot of campaigns do make the mistake of actually trying to come up with solutions straight away without actually letting folks know what the problem is. And a strike or industrial action is just one tactic in a broader strategy piece. Um, And you've got to work out when you need to use that, when's the right time to leverage those resources, which is people's labour, to uh, start to move that conversation along. Let's Nice segue, Stephen. Let's move the conversation along to then you guys starting to think about the campaign. So you've got all these workers... Uh, across the state that are pissed off with the way that they've been treated and respected or lack of respect by the New South Wales state government. Um, talk us through the thought process of, you know, you as the the, the, the secretary of the, of the state peak body for trade unions, thinking through, okay, we've, we've got all of this momentum happening across workplaces, trying to address these issues that we're seeing at a statewide level. We have an election in March 2023 how do we join the dots on this one and how did you come up with this idea of actually running what I would call an electoral campaign as opposed to an industrial campaign? Well, um, I think the thinking that we had was that each of these unions are, you know, very strategic, highly competent. Uh, they know how to campaign in their own rights. Uh, so for us, um, I've always taken the, the position that our role as a peak is to complement the work of our affiliates, not to do the work of our affiliates, because uh, they're best placed to do that. They're best placed. They know their members. What is our role? And I think out of the strikes and the year of the strike at the start, um, we wanted to make the election about essential workers and, uh, their commitment and what they delivered during COVID and after COVID uh, as a key, as the key focus point for us. And that was about how do we retain uh, essential workers because we knew they were leaving and then how do we address that crisis of broader needing to get more essential workers in. Uh, and, and for us, um, that the next step to that was, well, then obviously... If we, how do we link that to the general public? I mean, what do they care? Mm. So it has to be very much about we have to retain and keep these workers so that, you know, your kids are getting taught. And I, I use the analogy, if I take my daughter to drop her off at the bus stop, I need to know that the bus is going to turn up. If she gets to school, I know to know, need to know there's a teacher who's going to teach her. If she falls over in the playground, I know that there's an ambulance that's going to get there and it's not going to take two hours. And when she gets to the hospital, I need to know that there's healthcare workers that can look after it. Now you need a foot. Now that's where it becomes relevant to people um, 
who aren't in those jobs, what are the services you're actually getting and are you getting the services that you actually want? And trying to link it, as I was talking before, it's not just about pay. It's about the conditions in which these people work. Hmm. And I think it's much stronger when, you know, you, you, sure pays about retaining workers, but having the appropriate conditions are what allows you then to hire more workers in the coming years and encouraging young people to be part of that. So we want to really highlight the failure of the current coalition government in not ensuring that our essential workers were looked after, that they were not paid appropriately, and as a result, your services in your community um, are basically uh, less than what they should be. Uh, the other part of that that we knew is just talking to people. People, this government's been very good at building stadiums, roadways, all those sorts of things. But you talk to people on a Saturday morning. Can you park? Is there enough parking at your local shopping centre to be able to park? Are there enough teachers at your local school? Um, are there enough workers who are filling in potholes after all the rain we had up here? Um, you know, uh, are there enough health staff uh, at your hospital if there's an issue? And once you take it out of that major political forum and down to how are you going in your local area, people were saying to us, it's really shit when you put it that way. Mm. So we knew uh, that the service aspect was a really big part of it. Um, and so that's why we came up with the essential workers, uh, support essential workers deserve better campaign um, because it provided that umbrella over the work that all our affiliates were doing and, uh, and it was a narrative that every union could use if they wanted to, uh, and a lot of them are actually using it at the moment, that we're here to support essential workers. And so you allocated resources into the hiring of field organisers mm -hmm. in particular. Uh, yep. Why did unions New South Wales do that when evidently we can all just win election campaigns through digital advertising apparently these days? So I'm interested to see that you did such a thing in uh, this particular campaign. So for a couple, a few years now, or well, a number of years now, uh, we've been running a program called Union Summer, and I think a number of the other trades and labour councils run similar ones. Um, one of the things that we've been really cognizant of is getting young people into the union movement. Uh, and as part of this campaign, we didn't want this campaign to be just, we start it and we finish at the election, but how do we actually build capacity as we go through? Uh, and so we made a commitment to uh, hire uh, a number of field campaigners uh, who were young people. Uh, they didn't necessarily have to have a lot of campaigning experience, uh, but they had to be politically active. Uh, and in fact, ironically, most of the ones we, 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 well, all of them, I think, except for one or two, aren't members of the Labor Party. They aren't members of political parties, but they're they either activists in their current role at university or just coming out of university. Um, and... Uh, we got an extremely good uh, trainer in to assist us. I'll give a plug here to you, Stephen Dunstreet. Uh, but what we wanted to do is not just bung a whole lot of young people in and say, go and stand around A-frames and hand out flyers. We wanted to develop capacity in them because both that and our union summer program is about developing a pipeline of young activists who can then go into the union movement uh, who have a series of skills that will now allow them as organisers to think strategically, 
um, think about what they're doing and own their own part of the campaigns, own their own seat, um, and be given um, an ability to make their own decisions. Obviously, there's supervision, there's structure around that. But what we're asking these young people is, as you're skilling up the people you're working with, we want to be skilling you up as well. Mm. Um, and I, I, I think for us, it's very much about how we ge- how we generating the next generation of union activists and organisers and campaigners. Um, campaigners, really good campaigners, are hard to find. Uh, it's a long term uh, skill development process, uh, and I think for us, it was very much about how do we set these young people up to be part to get that first taste of organising and campaigning, how do we equip them so they don't feel like they're just they're going to fail or they've got that sense of failure but have a success a sense of success and being able to do something? And then how do we have them at a position when they're finished working with us for six months to be able to place them into unions where um, they'll hopefully, many of them become future leaders within the union movement. So that was part of our part of our thinking was not just running an election campaign, but how do we build capacity in the union movement in New South Wales? And I've been really pleasantly surprised by the young ones that we have employed, uh, but also the staff at Union New South Wales who've been supporting them and coordinating with them and working with them on skills development. And I think the time we've spent with them over the last six months, there's a, a great group of young people who unions should pick up as soon as the election's over. It's interesting you talk about that. What I love about um, your thinking there is sending these organisers then into affiliated uh, unions to go and continue to develop their skill sets. Um, one of the questions that we used to ask on the for uh, the job interview for people who wanted to be a field organiser in the Community Action Network was not the kind of quintessential where do you see yourself in five years, but what, what is your commitment to the practice of organising? Where do you see that you want to grow and develop beyond this campaign that you're applying for to work in um because i always wanted to get a sense of people you know is this just a job to then as a sort of a pathway to i want to go work in an mp's office or i want to go do policy whatever and that's fine like i you know don't begrudge people for wanting to do that at all um but what i was looking for is where is that pipeline where are the people we want to hang on to and say right let's continue to develop your skill sets because as you said in your earlier remarks um we the broader movement struggles for quality yeah. campaigners. Um, we need to invest in these people, young or old, um, so they can continue to give back to it. And one of the things I do love about organisers is after they finish one campaign, they say, right, where's the next one? Mm. Where can I go that's next? Right. You know? um, and so that's, I think that's really good long-term thinking by unions in New South Wales. Um, you talked about seats. Where are you for, specifically? I don't know if you want to share that on the podcast with our listeners, but certainly a lot of people from outside of New South Wales would be keen to get a sense of, um, where is the union movement starting to invest their resources in terms of what seats do they think are flippable uh, to hopefully turf out this uh, this conservative government? So we're predominantly uh, in our Western Sydney areas, so Parramatta, uh, which is sort of uh, the geographic centre of Sydney now, Penrith, which is on the outskirts just before the Blue Mountains, uh, Riverston, uh, which is sort of to the right of that, Holsworthy, Leppington, uh, they're, they're sort of the seats we've been looking at. Uh, we've actually had... We, you've always got to have a seat that you want to flip that's a long shot, uh, which is actually, for us, was Kiama down on the south coast. Uh, they've, had a, they've got a current member who 
has been banned from being in uh, Parliament for a number of uh, matters before the court, shall we say. Uh, but he's running again. Uh, he, he's very popular down there, but that's on a margin of about 12%. So that's our one long shot seat that we had a look at. The others are on very small margins of uh, anywhere, a few of them are five, 600 votes out to about three or 4%. Uh, and at the start of the campaign, uh, our our theory of change was is if we can move 4,500, uh, the votes of 4,500 essential workers in each of those seats, uh, we should be able to flip government uh, at the upcoming election. And so it is very much um, those sort of, their seats with their uh, uh, aspirational uh populations, very multicultural, um, large multicultural communities, uh, and obviously the aspirational, very aspirational for their children uh, in that sort of inner pocket. Um, Penrith is is that seat that um, sort of in the Lindsay, that bell, as they say, the bell weather seat of where the federal uh, electorates go. Uh, but it's a very hard, it's a very, um, it's a very tradies focus, a lot of tradies uh, who travel and work from there. Uh, so trying to look at them. Uh, but predominantly, uh, we, you could try and organise all those and try and get them all to change our votes. But that's why we focus on that. Those 4,500 votes are public sector workers in those seats predominantly and trying to flip them and for them to help flip their families in those voting aspects. So that was our theory of change. Uh, but predominantly Western Sydney is where we're focused. And from uh, the conversations that you're having on the ground, both with your um, organisers and also you call leadership teams going out there every every weekend and during the week, what are you learning about these communities and their attitudes leading into this, uh, this state election? We're learning that the electorate in New South Wales is very tolerant of conservative governments. Um, I think uh, people don't... If you're going to get people to change their vote, you really need to give them a reason to change. I think people are generally better the devil you know than the devil you don't know in politics. Um, We've... We've got a premier who's only been there just over twelve months. He's trying to run on a on a platform of I've only been here for twelve months. You've got to give me a go. When he was the treasurer and been there for twelve years, um, I think people are uh, people want a message of hope. Um, they want to see that their leaders are, are capable of dealing with the problems. Uh, that beset them or beset the state. I don't think there's necessarily a high bar around that. Uh, it's it's being competent and managing things competently. And so when you're an incumbent, to actually you've got a lot of power there and as an opposition leader, you, no one, it's very hard to get known. And so people are saying to us, um, comes down to, well, we need a reason to change our votes uh, and so for us, listening to them, it's about, well, how do we have a message that says to them, you really do need to change your votes? And I think um, that's where that, the essential worker campaign's been born out of. If you don't change your vote this time, you 
are not going to have a school that functions. You're not going to have a health service that functions. You're not going to have a transport network that functions. Um, and so people make their decisions on that. Mm. They need a reason to change. If they don't see a reason to change, they're just not going to do that. It's interesting to see how the Liberal Party framed their campaign here in Victoria in 2018 and in 2022, which was primarily, particularly in 2022 actually, was primarily focused on Daniel Andrews. Hmm. They openly made this a, a plebiscite on his leadership. Uh, and at the time I sort of thought, hmm, okay, maybe they know something that I don't know because I was under the impression that uh, Daniel uh, Andrews' leadership People may not agree with everything he does, but they certainly respect him and they see him to be an effective leader getting things mm-hmm. done. So in order to say to a voter, you, we think this election should be about Daniel Andrews and we think you should vote against him because we think he's crap. If they reject that premise initially, say, well, I don't actually agree with you on that one, so I'm mm-hmm. going to stick with what I'm going to do. I think that's half the reason why they lost so badly. What I find a strength about the campaign that you're running is you're not actually talking about, like we've hardly spoken about Dominic Perrottet in mm-hmm. this conversation. We've been talking about workers, their experiences, and the experiences that voters have that intersect with those workers. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, is that intentional? Do you see that as a is that a deliberate part of your campaign in terms of trying to flip votes? Is by let's have a conversation based on meaningful benefits and values that we all share. Yeah, it, it was very much about. I mean, we found that uh, Perrottet is not like Morrison. He's not um, viscerally hated. Uh, I mean, I think Morrison took that to a new political level uh, in his leadership. Uh, whereas I think, as you said, people are happy with if, if they see a leader who's competent, um, prepared to make decisions, uh, prepared to, you know, if they make the wrong decision, change. Uh, but primarily they get most of the decisions right and they stick by them and their services are going right and the state seems to be going okay, then people seem to be very reticent to vote, uh, to change their vote. And if you, as you say, if we went out there and said, uh, don't vote for Don because he's shit, that, that's like people just look at you and think, you're mad. What are you, what are you talking about? Uh, a, you're probably offending them if they voted for him, voted for him last time. So your starting conversation is not great. Um and secondly, as you say, they may not think that, so you've just, you know, completely alienated them. Uh, so our campaign was very much about um, we are the union movement. Uh, people trust the union movement when they speak about things that they know about. Uh, we know about workers. We know about their conditions. Uh, we know about delivering services. Uh, so this was a very safe ground where we would have at least begrudging respect because we know what we're talking about, um, coupled with um, pushing workers forward as the spokespeople. So if you've got a teacher talking about teaching, you've got a nurse talking about teaching, you've got an ambulance officer talking about being an ambo, you've got a cleaner talking about how hard it is to be a cleaner, uh, we're on pretty safe ground. We know what we're talking about and people will believe us. And so... Trying to play politics and be tear a politician down is not what we are. We're not politicians. Um, we're unionists. So we were very keen to make sure we spoke about what we knew about, what we could speak with authority and what people would trust us on. And that's why that has been a deliberate campaign, uh, not to simply just go after Perrottet. 
Last question, and uh, it goes to the. I feel like there's not even just here in Australia, but globally, there seems to be a bit. There's a renaissance of people's attitudes towards the concept of unionism and to collectively bargain. Um, you know, we're, you know, certainly there's a lot of data in the United States at the moment that's showing that the union membership is going through, is 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 increasing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure how it's going here in Australia, but certainly, you know, if I can borrow the Dennis Denudo vibe um i feel like there is an attitudinal shift amongst younger people and if i can go to one point when you guys invited me up to the barnstorm that you held uh, a couple of sundays ago you know 500 people turned up to this event to listen to other workers talk about their stories and seek people to commit to specific actions within your campaign the the amount of young people in that room Mm. was was really really positive um, and getting back to some of our original conversations, you know, the things that led you into the work that you were doing was about engaging with young people. I want to get a sense of your reflections of what you've seen from this particular campaign that gives you hope about the future of the union movement uh, in terms of engaging with young people and their motivations and how they want to sort of be empowered to create change mm-hmm. in their own environment. I think um, from... Well, I know from the work that we've been doing uh, throughout the campaigners we've had, Union Summer, there are a lot of kids, well, I shouldn't say kids, young people, young adults uh, who are very, very aware of the, the world and the surrounds around them. Um, they want to, they want a better life for themselves, whether that's, you know, talking about climate change or work or those sorts of opportunities. Um I think one of the things that really drives them is that many of them, certainly in Sydney, uh, are of the uh, think that they will never actually own a home, mm. uh, and that is a for better or worse, that's a benchmark in Australia as to you know what the dream is that you own a home and you have your family there, whatever that may look like. Um, and these are, these are people who are going through universities or going through TAFE and getting highly skilled jobs, and they're saying, we just can't afford to even buy a home. Uh, and I think in, in, in young people's psyches, that's, that's not okay. Like, that's not the sort of society I want to be living in in 10, 15 years' time. Um, and so there is a real, I think, uprising of activism uh, within young people uh, around this, I think uh, the political parties aren't very good at capturing those young people, um, and I and I think they're there for gra- up for grabs. And if you look at the union movement over the next ten to fifteen years, the bulk of union members are going to be retiring. Hmm. Uh, they are that of that age, forty forty five plus, who are going to get, and we're going to have uh, a significant decline in the number of unionists. Uh, and we have to start thinking about, well, how do we engage young people uh, in our movement uh, and being unionists? Uh, and I don't think that starts with day one, hi, I'm Mark, I'm from ex-union, can you give me 20 bucks a week? And, 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 you, and what do I get for that? Oh, you get solidarity. Oh, great. Um, there are a lot of really good things that unions do offer, and we need to start doing that work around what it is that unions are there for and what they do. Because I I come across young people who don't even know what a union is. Like it's not taught in schools. 
Uh, we've got a generation of adults or parents who's, uh, who haven't been union members as their, their, their grandparents were. Uh, and so that talk of unions just doesn't happen as much as it used to. And we've had 30 years of conservative governments demonising the union movement um, passing laws to keep us out of workplaces, keep us you know, trying to make us ineffective. Uh, but the one thing that is that strength for the union movement and young people is activism, uh, wanting a better world, uh, and wanting to achieve. Um, and and I think that's where, if we're smart and we work cleverly as a union movement, there's a whole lot of young people that we can bring into the movement through activism and eventually make them into unionists. But I don't think, I think in the workplace, you can probably make them as unionists, but outside of workplace, if we're trying to get them in, it's got to be two or three other steps before we actually ask them to become a union member. I feel like that's a whole nother conversation. That's I want to a have whole with you. nother conversation. <laughs> as you were talking about, like, oh, I want to ask Mark more questions now, but <laughs> we're at time now. So we're going to, going to have to get you back after uh, the election. Maybe we can have a bit more of a deep dive about how we address some of those uh, issues that you've raised. Yeah, that'd be great. I'd love to. Uh, now, for folks out there that are living in New South Wales and want to get involved in the Essential uh, Workers Deserve Better campaign, how do they go about that? Well, I reckon the easiest way is to put essential workers deserve better in your uh, in your um, computer. I can't remember what the term it is now. Um, and that, that'll pop up. We'll just go to unionsnewsouthwales.org.au and we've got a campaign page there and people can sign up and get... Uh, we've got a number of actions over the next couple of weeks. Next Wednesday... Oh, this Wednesday, we've actually got a big handout to save Sydney Water, which the government is threatening to privatise. Uh, so there's a number of stations there train station will be handing out so people can go onto the website and see where they can sign up to come along and help us. Fantastic. So you're running, you're obviously running uh, phone banks, door knocks, train yep. stations, weekend street stalls, high vis stuff. Yep. That's all, all, all there to be done. Fantastic. Uh, and if you're outside of New South Wales and you want to donate your, uh, your good hard cash, um, go to that website as well. I'm sure there's a donate button. Absolutely. There. There's a couple of uh, billboards we want to keep going. Fantastic. Uh, we'll drop the links into the bio for this week's podcast. So please uh, go there. If you live in New South Wales, or particularly in the Sydney area or down in Wollongong, uh, get involved in the campaign. There's some great field organisers doing some wonderful work there. Uh, and it's empowering uh, to see people take uh, uh, control of their own affairs and get organised in a collective way. And if you live outside of New South Wales, um, you know, chuck us 30, 40 bucks because it goes a long way. Mark Morey, thank you very much for coming on the show today. We really appreciate your time uh, and your energy. We know you're absolutely super busy it's not far away till election day so you got a lot on your, lot on your plate we wish you uh, and the union movement the best of luck on the 25th of march thanks very much Stephen. appreciate it hey there thanks for listening to social democratic did you like the podcast hit the follow or subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on apple podcasts or Podchaser. and to get all the latest updates on socially democratic follow dunn street on facebook instagram twitter and linkedin and we'll see you next friday socially democratic was brought to you by morris blackburn lawyers Morris Blackburn lawyers have spent more than a century paving the hard path to justice for everyday Australians. They've helped over 500,000 Australians turn their situation around and they know how the system works. 
Their experience and skills means you'll get the best results possible. Find out more on their website, morrisblackburn.com.au. Morris Blackburn, experience you can count on. Social Democratic was brought to you by SwiftFox. Every moment on a campaign matters. You need the tools that you can trust, lists that are up to date, phone banks that can change minds, emails that drive donations, events that will energize the community online and offline, and text blasts that distill your message perfectly. SwiftFox CRM is made for campaigners by campaigners. To find out more, go to swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign.